At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Fast Money starts right now. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, David Seberg, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, the crypto crush rages on as the universe braces for a wave of regulation. Don't worry, a widely followed crypto investor says there is one big winner in the crypto crackdown. He will tell us what that is. Plus, top strategist Julian Emanuel says a major event tomorrow could spell the end of easy money for the market and the start of a lot more volatility. He'll be here to explain what is keeping him up at night. But first, we start off with what has kept the market on edge for a week. President Trump touting tariffs, but exempting our North American neighbors, Canada and Mexico. Let's get straight to Kayla Tausch in D.C. for all the details and the reaction from the steel industry. Kayla. Melissa, the decision that the president announced today was one that he had long sought, had been investigating for 11 months to impose those extremely steep tariffs on foreign steel and aluminum. The proclamation that he signed today is the enforcement document that will be put into the Federal Register, according to White House officials, and they will take effect in 15 days. So the president made sure to point out that the order as he signed today is not the end-all be-all, and it might not be permanent. America will remain open to modifying or removing the tariffs for individual nations as long as we can agree on a way to ensure that their products no longer threaten our security. So I've put Ambassador Lighthizer, great gentleman, in charge of negotiating with countries that seek an alternative to the steel and aluminum tariffs. There are countries that are already getting in that queue. The trade commissioner for the European Union said she believes the EU should be excluded and has a Saturday meeting set up with Ambassador Lighthizer. Of course, among the other allies that will be seeking a permanent exemption, Canada and Mexico, which will be temporarily excluded, but senior administration officials uh, made clear that that was a short-term exemption pending the outcome of NAFTA discussions. The CEO of Nucor, one of the country's largest steel producers, said he agreed with that strategy. We want a fair deal, you know, reciprocal, level playing field. And if he's able to, to achieve that goal, then the tariffs will, will no longer be needed. So we're pleased with his statements of tying the tariffs to a fair resolution to our trade negotiations. But today's news did not come with widespread acceptance from Republicans, from the corporate community, or from Capitol Hill. The Business Roundtable, an influential corporate lobby, called the tariff announcement a major unforced error by the president. The opposition on Capitol Hill ranged from Senator Orrin Hatch, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee, to Senator John McCain, to Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, who went so far as to say he will be introducing uh, legislation that will potentially nullify the announcement the president made today, saying, quote, trade wars, trade wars rather, are not won. They are only lost 
Congress cannot be complicit as the administration courts economic disaster. Of course, Congress is trying to evaluate what tools it even has to fight with the president has made final today. We'll see if there's anything they can come up with. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausch, you joining us from the White House. Despite all the talk, the names that you think might have benefited, they didn't. In fact, steel stocks tanking on the announcement, calling into question <clears throat> just how effective these ter tariffs would be. Plus, despite the volatility we've seen since the rumors of tariffs were first floated, the broader market ended the day higher. Are investors calling these tariffs toothless? Is this all just protectionist talk? Well, just talk. Guys. Well, I mean, it's not a trade war. It's a trade challenge, number one. I mean, it's, we're a long way. So Did you wish her happy International Women's Day? <laughs> Guy. Come on, Guy. Please. I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm the only Can one here on the desk. restart right, the show. I guess. Sorry. Anyway. Sorry. Guy. Damn Mel, happy. happy International Women's Thank Day. You. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you're with us yeah. tonight. It's not a trade war, Mel. It's a trade challenge. So let's get that out there first, number one. Number two, the, the, the move into steel stocks took place over the last nine months, long before tariffs were talked. The fundamentals in place and the tailwinds that sector has had are still in place. So to me, this is just a bump in the road on tariffs that have been walked back considerably since last week. But I think we're taking the eye off the ball, and I think Tim would agree with this. The real factor at work in this market will be the Fed. Is it four times this year? I think we're going to find out a lot more tomorrow with the jobs number. I agree. But getting back to the tariffs, I mean, it's interesting. I get your point about the gains made in the steel stocks, and maybe yeah. this is sort of profit-taking. But take a look at the intraday move. Like, so GM, General Motors, rose at least a percent on the back of this notion that Canada and Mexico will be exempt. Caterpillar also turned around intraday. Yeah, and, and I think those are the places where clearly U.S. automakers have the most to lose, and certainly friendlier terms is, is good. Are good. I, I think you have a place here, if you think about steel companies, how they've responded in the past to the Bush tax uh, tariffs. Uh, for example, what you saw was a big rally in the stock prices, which, as Guy said, we kind of already have had in these steel companies. Then as you start to get to this place where, look, you, you start to raise prices, you cut demand. You also do something when prices go higher for steel companies. They start to act very inefficiently. They're very poor allocators of capital historically, kind of like the airlines. And this is what's happened to the sector. So steel companies are pricing this in. Markets are efficient. Um, U.S. Steel went from 19 to 46. I mean, you tell me over what's what in period? the price. What period? I'm sorry? 19 to 46. 19 to 46 over the last nine months. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been an extraordinary move. By the way, as we've said, those reflected fundamentals that are very good. We're at 90 percent, uh, you know, essentially production capacity, utilization in, in hot roll coal. You have a hot market that I think is preparing for more infrastructure spend. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure... The fundamentals of the sector didn't need this. I right. get the politics behind it, and they're not just in the steel industry. They're for yeah, but you, space. And you just said politics. I actually think what's going on here is more politics than policy. I think that this is a situation where they really are trying to negotiate some stuff that he had, the president had been talking about for a very long time. So I think the market, with all these gyrations that we've seen over the last week and a half, I think the way it was rolled out was obviously the real problem for all intents and purposes. And then you see, you know, cone leave. It seems all dramatic and everything like that. But now the markets are kind of comfortable with the fact that, like you use the term, maybe it's a bit toothless, maybe it's a good negotiating tactic. They took Mexico, they took uh, Canada yeah, out of the mix. Um, you sound and like then, you're in agreement you know, with this. No, well, what I'm saying is, is that, I, I, what, what, you know, it, it doesn't sound as disastrous, you know, as it did maybe 10 days ago. But, but a negotiating I, I, chat I, tactic for what, if you will? Great. So you look at it and say there is the 301 coming out, which we've talked about, the intellectual property study. That's going to come out and it's going to be straight against China, right? It's going to be a direct you know, hit at China if we make any remarks from that perspective. So you just heard China saying very clearly, we are very willing to get in a trade war if need be. 
When that 301 study comes out, which could be in the next month, I think that is a big headwind for the market. I mean, more than people are starting to, to think about it a little bit, but I think it is a massive headwind that people aren't you know, projecting, and it could hit very quickly, and I think that could be the one that is the real you know, catastrophic you can't, sort of event. You, you can't take away the fact, though, that global trade partners aren't saying, you know what? We're going to have to reassess a lot of stuff. Right. I mean, there, there is a positive response to this, and it is something that's going to support better terms for the United States. So um, I, I don't agree with these tariffs. I want to be clear about that. But I do agree with pushing back in places where we can cut better deals. Yeah. And, and let's face it, um, at this point, the table is set for us to push back a little bit harder. And it's very interesting. The, length, the tone today was so much different from just the past couple of days. He's willing to negotiate. Right. It's 25 and 10 percent, but he's willing to either raise it or lower it at this point. Not I mean, permanent. And everything is about not permanent. Everything is in actors, flux. All that stuff. I mean, think about the amount of steel that China, you know, th sends through Mexico into the U.S. I mean, so Mexico now has to be compliant, very compliant, or they're going to start to see a tariff that's going to be implement implemented on them that will be very difficult for them to absorb. So I look at it and say, he's got this sort of, sort of negotiation tactic, I think, in play. Let's see how it ends. So what it comes down to is this. Do you buy these steel names that have sold off over the last day and a half on this dip? And am I, I'd say, listen, Timmy's right. I mean, you've seen the move in U.S. steel from 19 to 46. It's been crazy. Doesn't mean it, it's over, I don't think. Valuations are still reasonable, and there's still tailwinds in the sector. This is a bit of a hiccup, but I think the sector goes higher. Do you fade the Russell? That was a sector that was seen to benefit because all the sales are domestic, or most sales are domestic, more insulated from a look, trade war. Look, um, the, the Russell's a really important kind of barometer or canary for you right now. And in fact, the Russell's traded quite well over the last couple of days relative to what some people might think. And I would argue that the Russell really is the Trump trade in a bottle. So um, let, let's really? see. It's really underperformed, though, if you think about it, over the last year, like large caps. And, you know, I, I, right? I, I, I know it's outperforming the last week and a half. When we started to get a whiff of the tax deal, um, uh, you know, the IWM really started to rally back from doldrums from the midsummer. So um, in, in absolute performance, look, I think they've been largely, you know, more or less in line and techs outperformed everybody. But but you can't tell me that this isn't geared towards the small business. Uh, and I think that is something that you should be watching. I, I just want to say quickly, though, that on the national security side, starting to allocate any type of policy on the basis of national security becomes a very slippery slope. And this is the kind of thing that I've seen in countries like Russia, where they suddenly tag every industry a strategic industry. I mean, is that what we're going to do in this country? And that's the part of this that really worries me. All right. Nick, David? No, I was just going to say small caps, I think, are, are good trade. I think at least depending on tomorrow's data, we get a hot you know, wage number. Again, I think small caps underperform the larger cap names. I think it will be risk on in some of the mega cap names, larger cap names that we saw work. But I do think this 301, you want to be long the Russell into that. I'm short sure the Russell, and I just want to say really yeah. quickly why, and I did it late last week, because I think that this relative outperformance, I, I, I don't really believe that this was going to be a cataclysmic event on the tariffs thing, and I think we're going to go back and test those February 9th lows, and I think we're going to see correlations among all caps go to one, and we're going to see possibly, actually, the Russell um, kind of give up some of that outperformance on the way back down. Not cataclysmic, but test the lows. That... Yeah, we're moving on. Okay, we're going to move yeah. on. Yeah. Push for tariffs led by the nationalist wing of the White House, led by President Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, and an Axios report this morning saying that Navarro is gunning for Gary Cohn's job as the president's chief economic advisor since stocks lower. Let's bring in the man behind that report, Jonathan Swan. Jonathan, great to have you with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Obviously, the markets would, would probably really not like that. Um, but what do you think the odds are that, that Trump actually elevates Peter to that position? Well, they seem very low uh, okay. because uh, he's going to have so much opposition. Capitol Hill uh, is going crazy about the prospect. Republican leadership 
view him as a menace to the US and global economies. Um, the entire National Economic Council, I'm told by senior officials, would like the staff would likely quit their jobs immediately if Navarro was appointed. But all that said, I think you'd be foolish to count it out as a, as a possibility. Because the White House senior staff tried to marginalise Peter Navarro 12 months ago. He was uh, sent to Siberia in the executive office building. Uh, he was not invited to meetings. He had to endure the humiliation of copying, CCing Gary Cohn on every email he sent. Uh, and he continued to uh, be invited because, uh, in the end because of Trump. Trump is the one who likes him. Trump is the one who agrees with him. And frankly, Navarro reflects Trump's own views, Trump's own hardwired protectionist views on trades far better than Gary Cohn or Steven Mnuchin or any of these other senior officials, with the one exception of Wilbur Ross. Right. But piece together, Jonathan, what has happened today with the tariffs, where it appears, at least on the surface, that Trump is going a little bit more centrist in his approach to tariffs, not as gung-ho nationalist right. protectionist as previously feared. Does this tell us that perhaps he's He's listening to the party, to the to the dissension in the ranks from the Freedom Caucus, the 107 House Republicans who signed that letter and sent it to the White House. I mean, I, is this having an impact? I, I wouldn't draw that conclusion. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the really key thing to understand about Trump's thinking with this announcement is he really does see this as an out of the deal scenario. He has come to believe, uh, largely through conversations with Justin Trudeau, the leader of Canada, that he can use this to squeeze Canada and Mexico, particularly Canada, not so much Mexico, to get a much better deal on NAFTA. And if that doesn't eventuate, uh, I mean, again, yes, it's flexible. Yes, he's leaving a lot of room. But people always, uh, you know, fantasize about it being, you know, the, the business community fantasize about it being flexible in the right direction. This could still be flexible in the wrong direction. If the NAFTA negotiations aren't to Trump's liking, he could, he could just as well go, well, you know what, stuff you guys, I, I'm going to go right back to where I was. Uh, just to understand, Trump didn't want to do any exemptions. He had this whole, pri privately he was saying things to the effect of, well, if I give Canada a break, then I get Japan on the phone and I have to do something for them and da 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 da, -da slippery slope. Um, but it was really the NAFTA negotiations that made him believe that this could be a viable strategy. All right, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, pleasure. Jonathan Swan. All right, so we, we're sort of in a tricky time. We've got the payrolls uh, number tomorrow. We right. are still awaiting for some sort of resolution or more clarity on the trade issue. What are you doing? Well, I mean, and just to be clear, if anything, for all the pushback on, on tariffs, it's, it's because it's growth drag, growth negative. That maybe alleviates some pressure, even though I don't think we see that for six to nine months um, in terms of terms of trade. But uh, I think tomorrow's payroll number, as everybody knows, the wage component is massive. Um, I think regardless of that's a benign number, I think what we're saying on this desk, I certainly would agree with the statement that says, I think markets are choppy to sideways. And, and what's been clear is for all those people that said we're going to test the lows or we're going to test the 200 like we did and we're going to set new highs, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that simple. The good news is that the VIX continues to close lower, uh, and that is something that's very interesting. What'd you do? Yeah, I, I think if it's, if it's a benign number tomorrow, it's not a market to chase. I wouldn't be chasing it. I agree. I think we're sideways to possibly even to lower levels. Uh, I'm just looking for catalysts and looking at biotech names that do have catalysts, like a derm coming up, cheap stock. I think that you can make some money short-term in names like that. 
What'd you yeah, think so today? I, I think the lack of balance in energy, you look at the XLE, you look at the XLP, you look at Staples, it's just, you know, I think Guy mentioned it in an earlier block, when you were talking about the lack of leadership. We know the prior leaders are the ones that let them back, but the S&P is still in the mid part of that range, so I'm short SPY, I'm short IWM, and I'm going to stick it out. I'm not particularly worried about the balance we've seen. You had the stealth rally in chips, Tim alluded to it. I mean, Micron's up from 41 to 55. I think it's a 52-week high today. They report on March 22nd. I think with some of these chip names, very quietly, you saw what Lamb Research said couple days ago in terms of where their revenue is going to be. I think it means that memory is, you know what, there's still strength in memory. These chip names still go higher. And I think Micron in earnings on the 22nd is still a play. All right, coming up, the crypto crackdown is coming. And a top crypto investor says there will be one big winner. He'll be here to tell us who that is. Plus, speaking of crypto, in case you didn't get enough last night, there's one more part, one more of the interview with CEO of Ripple. We are dying to show you. Uh, we'll hear his big predictions for the crypto universe. And later, Pina Jarian is making a special appearance all the way from Hawaii because there is one stock he's so excited about, he had to interrupt his vacation just to do a fast pitch. We're live from Times Square in New York City. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a big buzzkill. Kroger getting crushed today, sinking more than 12% after failing to impress investors with its full-year outlook on its earnings before the belt today. The company pointed to some of its biggest rivals as a culprit. Its growing competition from Walmart and Amazon have forced Kroger to slash its prices, invest more in online and delivery services, putting pressure on its profit margin. So with the stock now trading at its lowest level since November, can Kroger survive in an Amazon world? Yeah, I think they can. I mean, listen, this is the same t- thing that we talked about a month ago with Walmart and we talked about it last week or just the other day with, with Target. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think that a, a Kroger, which has such dramatic market share in the U.S., they're going to have to spend just like Walmart had to spend over the last couple of years, just like Target's doing right now. Um, so it really comes to where do you, when do you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, from a valuation standpoint, it's probably starting to bottom out a little bit. I think last summer people started to look at this thing and say, at this valuation, it makes sense no matter what they have to spend because Amazon's also going to be spending, the integration with Whole Foods, it's not going to be such a quick fix. So but I think there's multiple winners here. As well. But Amazon doesn't need to prove to people that their spending is, is actually going to lead to right. at least outside market share gains. They, people assume that with Amazon. And what I think it's really interesting, what a tough week for the hardline retailers. I mean, think about Target. Think about Walmart's gone, you know, from, I don't know where. 110 out of 88. Low 90s, 200 day, yeah. scratching the bottom. Why? Because everybody thought that Walmart was an Amazon, you know, clone. Everybody thought that suddenly uh, the tax deals was gonna, were going to get these guys some kind of new, new, new break. By the way, all these guys are talking about one thing. They're going to take their corporate tax savings and they're going to spend it. And they're going to spend it on their business. And that may be good. Target's doing all the right things. It's not helping margins. Price I, investment, and, they and, call and it. The competition Discounting. is ridiculous okay. in this space. Totally. That's Aldi, the bottom line. Lytle coming in from Which Germany. they mentioned, Kroger mentioned in. on the call. I think what's really important to point out here is, and Tim, you know, nailed it when you said Amazon doesn't have to really to speak to you know, sort of, uh, you know, earnings. They Deficacy, have to speak to follow through on their spending. They, they yeah, do we're... not. They don't have to speak to profits right now. They could spend all they want. They can kick it back to the consumer, cut costs, and it's going to have an impact on Kroger. We basically round trip now from December. Stock was yeah. 20 in December. To trade it up to, I think it got up to 31. 32, right? Yeah. Back down. So valuation, yeah, I guess at 10 and a half times, it's somewhat compelling. It doesn't mean that you go out and buy the stock. But I'll tell you, huge volume day. The quarter itself wasn't a disaster. And the guidance, I don't think, was a 12.5% to the downside guidance. I hear given what it's they said. interesting. It's going to be, yeah. I think there's All another right. day left, but yes. Yes, by the way. 
Still ahead. One Dow stock is nearing correction territory, but Pete Najarian says it is about to take off. He will join us for a very tropical fast pitch. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. It's easy money. Maybe not for long, because a top strategist says a key event could spell the end of easy money and the return of more volatility. He'll be here. Plus... Oh, wait, there's one more. Yes, there is. The part of the Ripple CEO interview that we did not air last night. And trust us when we say it's spectacular. And that's when Fast Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin now well below 10,000 as investors fear bigger crackdowns coming for the crypto space. Bob Bassani's got more from the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. Hello, Melissa. Cryptocurrencies are seeing more fallout today from fears of regulation. So Bitcoin's now fallen 18 percent over the last two days as watchdogs weigh in on the digital currency space. Yesterday, it was the SEC issuing a warning that consumers should be careful about trusting exchanges that they say are protected by federal law, but they're not. Most are unregulated. Now, the SEC seems to be setting up for a crackdown. They want exchanges to register with the SEC. They've previously said initial coin offerings, ICOs, are securities and that anyone selling ICOs to the general public should register with the SEC. But this goes further. The SEC thinks even the exchanges listing ICOs should themselves register. It's another move toward further regulation. Also yesterday, a district court in New York ruled that cryptocurrencies can be regulated by the CFT as a commodity. Now, the CFTC has already had the power to regulate trading in Bitcoin futures and other derivatives, but this ruling implies the CFTC has jurisdiction in the case of fraudulent activity involving any kind of cryptocurrency transaction, including the cash markets. In other words, general law regarding fraud can be used by the CFTC in dealing with cryptocurrencies in any form, whether it's cash or derivatives. Now, what's this all mean? Regulators started getting very noisy about cryptos toward the end of last year. So some of this can feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. You know, we've all heard this before. But the regulatory scheme is evolving now. Slowly but surely, the regulatory net is getting cast wider and wider. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thanks. Bob Pisani. Our next guest says that uh, should regulations hit the crypto space, one coin will emerge unscathed. Spencer Bogart is a partner at Blockchain Capital, which invests in a variety of crypto assets. Spencer, great to see you again. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Which is the one coin that will emerge unscathed? Because it looks like the price <laughs> action is showing that every coin is getting hit at this point. So to say unscathed might be to go too far. But listen, when we're separating Bitcoin, which is the one coin that we're discussing here, from the rest of them, it's certainly the least risky here. Right. So what's going on in the market this week? There's a lot of regulatory concern about um, from the SEC and from the CFTC. Right. The SEC is the 900 pound gorilla in the room. The SEC is primarily concerned with securities. Right. And the SEC has delineated that some crypto assets are securities and some are not. Now, along a spectrum, Bitcoin is the furthest away from being a security out of all of the crypto assets, in my opinion. And therefore, it is the least likely to to kind of come under a regulatory crackdown. Um, now, that said, I think that the long tail of ICOs and tokens that have come out, some of them are going to be at risk and some of them could face liquidity crunches in the coming weeks. Now, why is it that Bitcoin is the furthest away from being a security? It's because the money that people, if I buy Bitcoin, that money doesn't go towards a business or towards a core group. I mean, is that that's the thinking? 
Sure. So the SEC has an established framework for thinking about this, and a core, a core portion of that framework is the Howey test. Um, there's four prongs to the Howey test. Listen, I am not a securities attorney, so definitely do not rely on my advice here. But a, a big portion of this is that investors contribute money to a common enterprise with the expectation of profit based primarily on the benefit from or the efforts of others. So in the case of Bitcoin, that's just Ne never has been the case. There was nobody that launched Bitcoin and said, here, I'm going to sell you 20% of the coins for a specific price, right? The, the software was launched into the world, people started mining it, and it grew organically. There is no central enterprise that receives the money that investors pay for Bitcoin and then deploys it, right? This is a decentralized network with decentralized participants. Hey, Spencer, do you think that's one reason why Ethereum or Ether in particular has underperformed over the last couple of months versus Bitcoin? Because for all intents and purposes, it was an ICO um, and there's a lot of ICOs mm. that are built on top of its platform. Yeah, I think it's more the latter that, that could be weighing on Ethereum this week. So you're right that Ethereum did itself have an ICO several years ago. That said, I think that if we read between the lines of what the SEC has said prior, it seems to indicate that they do not consider Ethereum to be an ICO. Uh, or sorry, to be a security. But several of the tokens that have launched on top of Ethereum likely are being deemed securities. And if so, we consider Ethereum to kind of be the feedstock or the fuel that people use to participate in these ICOs, then in that case, we should expect demand to, to dwindle at least a little bit in this regulatory crackdown. How, how does this sort of changing landscape on regulation as it concerns ICOs, Spencer, impact the way you look at ICOs right now and decide whether or not you want to buy them as the rules are being created. Sure. So, I mean, if we look at something and, you know, our counsel or, or the people that we depend on, you know, seem to indicate that something is a security, then we're going to want to see a project that follows all securities regulation. That means doing the appropriate filings and restricting your sales to the appropriate investors that are suitable for that type of an investment. Um, that said, you know, not all of the crypto assets that we invest in are necessarily securities. So some of them can be, you know, crypto assets like Bitcoin that certainly are not securities. And in that case, you know, we're a little bit less concerned about the securities framework and a little bit more concerned about the long-term viability of the economics. It'll be interesting how ICOs now market themselves in relationship to this. I mean, I would imagine that ICOs, from their, from their standpoint, all they would say is, you know what, this is almost like a donation. This, there's no expectation of a shared profit in the future. I mean, that's essentially what Tezos' co-founders have said in relationship to the investigation that supposedly is going on in, into the, the $232 million they raised in an ICO. They said, this is like a donation and the token you get is a gift bag, implying there is no expectation of profit. I mean, a tote bag, I believe it is. A tote bag. Oh, yeah, I thought, I thought it was, sorry, I remember it was a gift bag. But, you know, the same, the same impact here. Um, the marketing is going to change greatly. So we won't really, do you really think that you're going to get Paperwork from an ICO which says, hey, we're just like a securities. Here's, here's our papers. Take a look. Oh, definitely. Some of them definitely are taking that approach. Um, so, you know, we're seeing a, the, across the whole spectrum. So we're seeing some that are going the straight securities route, are doing all the appropriate filings and restricting their sale in an appropriate manner. Um, and then we're seeing others that clearly think that they are outside of that. And, and that might be the right approach. Um, again, it, it kind of remains to be seen here. But yeah. I don't think that you can just change your marketing pitch and expect that regulators are all of a sudden just going to give you breathing room. Yeah. It's lots more substantial than that. Uh, lots of developments here in the space. Spencer, thanks so much. Always good to see you. Thanks Spencer for having me. Bogart. Wow. I look, I, I look at it, in, in my opinion, you, you heard about Ethereum. Like my view is that we're going to have the adults get into this game, the institutional investors, the real money come in, 
you need to have regulation to some extent. And I understand that it's going to be a little near-term painful and there's going to be a hiccup. There absolutely are some bad actors out there that are going to get shaken out. But right now, we're looking at a setup where it's really an incredible buying opportunity, from my perspective, in the Ethereum's of the world, these protocol layer tokens that sort of have real utility value. I look at it and say, it, you, you shouldn't be taking your foot off the gas here. You should be stepping in and making sure that you're, you're, you're adding to your position. So let's play in the stock game. So uh, Patrick Burns, the CEO of Overstock, and that stock has effectively been trading lockstep with the cryptocurrencies for a long time. Steve Grosso pointed this out months ago. But today, interesting, right? All these crypto names lower. Overstock was actually up 3% today. Maybe that's your first tell on this name for a long time. They report in a couple weeks. I don't think their earnings necessarily are a catalyst. But for the first time in a while, this stock is sort of uh, decoupling from the cryptocurrencies. All right. So ahead, Ripple Part 2. CEO Brad Garlinghouse making a major prediction about the future of crypto in a never-before-seen part of our exclusive interview. We'll bring you those comments. Plus, Pete is bringing the heat fresh off the sandy beaches in Hawaii, ready to pitch one Dow stock he says is about to bubble higher. Will the other traders agree? Do not miss this very special fast pitch right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on Tesla, which is sending the stock down about 2% in the after-hour session. Let's get to Kate Rogers for the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. That's right. The stock is lower, and this is because their chief accounting officer, Eric Branderis, left Tesla yesterday. This comes from an SEC filing. The filing just says on March 7, 2018, Eric Branderis left Tesla for personal reasons. Tesla appreciates Eric's service to the company. He had been in that chief accounting officer position since October of 2016. And once again, the stock now down by around 1.5%, Melissa. Back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Rogers. Now, when we hear after hours that a chief accounting officer and a corporate controller has left a company, usually the reaction is not good. And here we are seeing it in the market. Yeah, although this news you know, came out of a report that was out yesterday at some point. So, But, you know, look, personal reasons. We have to go on that. I, I, I'm not going to attempt to read more into it than that. Um, by the way, you know, Elon Musk te texts are getting through to the president during a major t press conference where it's only good for Tesla. It's only protective for American autos. So, I mean, there's a lot of counterbalance to some bad news that I'm not sure is bad news. Right. Okay. Chief accounting officer, that's one thing you don't want to hear. It would have been worse if it was Friday afternoon after the close and we yeah, had a week. That's but, true. you know, Tesla is you got to give them the benefit of that all the time. I'm surprised the stock's not lower than it currently is. So I stay I think it's still a buy here. What do you think, Dan? Well, um, yeah, I agree with both these guys. I just think the stock's been really volatile. It's actually outperformed this year. It's up almost, uh, you know, 3 4% right now, concluding the after hours. So to me, at the end of the day, I think what Tim mentioned about the tweets, I think is really interesting. I think you have to remember, though, this is a guy who also sells cars that get, you know, you get a gov government subsidy to buy. So it seemed like pretty self-serving for all intents and purposes. But, um, you know. Oh, do, give him credit. I mean, yeah. this guy's yeah. worked the system like nobody. That's part it's of his Musk's genius. World, I mean, I don't, right. you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a bonus for Tesla. It's not something he should, and I don't think you're doing that. No. But I, yeah. Let's move on here. We're just uh, hours away from the February employment report. Economists calling for 205,000 non-farm payrolls to be added, while the unemployment rate expects to tick lower to 4%. Now, this morning, the uh, ECB just took steps to end its easy money policies, and our Fed is expected to raise rates in a couple weeks. That combination has our next guest worried. Julian Emanuel is a chief equity and derivative strategist at BTIG. Julian, always good to see you. Great to be How here. How worried are you? Uh, in the short term, it's definitely a cause for concern. Basically, um, if you look at this entire correction, it has been a function of elevating uncertainties. 2017, investors got paid to fade monetary and governmental uncertainty. 
That's no longer the case. We're in a higher volatility regime. With the VIX creeping back down toward 15, anything that's going to upset the apple cart in the next few weeks coming into, into this March 21st Fed meeting is, is a concern. Longer term, though, and there's a big but here, if the economy continues to grow, the Fed can continue to hike and we're going to be just fine. Is really the fear um, not of rising interest rates in general, because theoretically rates are rising for the right reasons, the economy is growing, but that there will be a Fed misstep, that there will be an overshoot or an undershoot on the Fed's part, particularly when we're talking about the impact, which we still haven't fully seen, of tax cuts and the impact of possibly tariffs as well, um, which would be inflationary here in this environment. Right. So, so the inflation question has been on everyone's mind. And clearly we're focused on this average hourly earnings number on Friday. But the fact is, is that those are a lot of unknowns. And the Fed has ended every bull market for the last 40 years by tightening too far. But again, with an economy set to grow in the mid twos this year and next year, we think there's a, a long way to go. And if it's communicated properly, and that's the challenge mm -hmm. for the new Fed chair, uh, we can stay bid. Julian, how about the technical dynamics? The ECB met today. Mayor Draghi actually removed some language about possibly ramping up QE, which means I thought it was a hawkish statement today. I think the ECB controls U.S. rates as much as the Fed does right now. What do you think? I absolutely agree with that. And, and that sort of you have to throw that all into the soup. And interestingly enough, the market actually sold the euro yeah. on what was a hawkish statement, which to us actually points out to a lot of what this correction in the equity market is all about, and that's positioning imbalances. There's a lot of shorts in the dollar. There's a lot of longs in, in some of the very uh, sectors that have worked very well in the equity market, and there are a lot of bond shorts. That could change. In, in Julian, the can you term. explain that to us? Because that's really important. You said that the, uh, the reaction of the euro today on the hawkish statement, you know, heading into 2017, people were convinced that the Fed was going to continue to raise rates, they're going to continue to tighten, and the dollar was going to go higher. And it did the exact opposite. It declined about 10%. So are we about to see a dollar move the opposite way? You just said there's a lot of shorts there. We, we think that's entirely possible. The key to why the dollar was sold last year even though the Fed kept moving, is because the U.S. grew below that uh, of Europe last year. That's set to change. Sort of the normal relationship is going to take hold again. And so, again, when you think about positioning, we do think there's a chance for dollar strength coming up. So in terms of equities, where do you stand? So in, in, in the short term, we really like real estate because okay. real estate has traditionally worked well when the dollar goes stronger, you don't have to worry about sort of tariffs and so on and so forth. Um, we also think healthcare works for the same reasons, immune to macro noise for the most part. Um, but again, as we get back into this growth year and, and sort of work through the correction, we think financials continue to work because right. rates are going higher mm -hmm. and, and, and those are tailwinds. And we think energy actually gone and forgotten, a very small weighting in the S&P, is about to make a comeback. Julian, good to see you. Thanks, Thanks for coming by. Julian Emanuel, BTIG. Uh, in terms of the jobs report specifically tomorrow, is good news, bad news for the market? So about three Fridays ago, um, before we went on hiatus for the Olympics, we mm -hmm. sat around. BK was here. Tim was here. Tim said, we're coming into a place where good news is bad news and bad news is going to be bad news. And that Friday, 
was when this whole volatility thing started. Right. And I think that's going to manifest itself again. I think I'm going to paraphrase Julian, but I think what he's saying is the pendulum in the short term, at least, might have shifted where good news potentially could be bad news. For I, I just yeah. think that as far as the dollar and the euro goes, I think the dollar still has downward pressure on it. Twin deficits, I think import inflation, all these things we're talking about with tariffs. I think this puts pressure inflation. I think we're going to be reissuing a lot of debt. I actually think that the dollar stays weak. That's good for markets. It's great for emerging markets. It's great for commodities. Uh, and I buy European financials. I think good news is absolutely bad news. And I think the market's going to react to that. And I think that that's why I said it's going to stay sideways for a period of time. Look, there's no question. You talked about short bond positioning. That's going to have an impact on yields as well. So I do think that we're going to see a spike in yields here a little bit. But I don't know that it gets away from us to the point where it has a meaningful impact over the long term if the growth narrative stays in place. Over, over the equity investments. Still ahead, a once left for dead 90s tech darling is surging up 90% in the last year. Some traders think it could go even higher. We will give you the name. Plus, Pete Najarian brings us the fast pitch. Fresh off the surf in Hawaii. It's going to be so hot, we decided to make this special <laughs> cardboard cutout of him. Much more fast money right after this. Mm. Welcome back to Fast Money. You might be wondering why you're hearing Magnum P.I. music. No, Josh Lipton is not standing by with news, but another Hawaiian private eye is. Pete Najarian is coming to us live today from Honolulu for a very special edition of Fast Pitch. Aloha, Pete. Look at you. Aloha, Mel. <laughs> are you, it's wait, great wait, to wait. see you guys. Are you unponytailed? Because this could be TV history. Yeah, actually, I am. I'll even give you a little tease. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit on ponytail. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm letting it fly today, Mel. Letting it fly. All right, Pete. Well, well, go ahead with your pitch. What is it? All right. Here, here's the pitch for today. It's Coca-Cola, and I've liked this name for a very long period of time. I've owned it for a long time now, and I still think that there's plenty of upside. And so I'll give you the three reasons why I think that. One. The management. Now, Kent was great. He did a great job of diversifying this company, but somebody else who's been with the company for a very long time, since 1996, is James uh, Quincy, who's been phenomenal. He's done a great job. He just got in a little over a year ago, but the diversification of what they are wanting to do with this company. Now, they didn't go the Frito-Lays route that we've seen out of Pepsi, but they've diversified away from carbonation. As a matter of fact, fundamentally, what I really like about this company is the fact that they've got 21 companies within their company that all produce over a billion dollars worth of sales. So they've really diversified themselves. They've gotten themselves into an area of growth. And where they've seen the growth is the earnings growth projections going forward, about eight and a quarter percent. They've had margin expansion. They continue to innovate themselves. And I like what the company's doing. They've moved more towards milk, sports drinks, water. They've done everything juice, but that diversification is what I really like, Mel. And I think going forward, they're going to be something where the real growth is going to come as they push more and more in depth into India. That's where the real growth is going to come for in the future. Aloha, Pete. It's Tim. Hey, man. Um, so I Aloha, agree, Tim. I, I agree with you on the call. Um, I, I get concerned on Coca-Cola on valuation only. Yeah. I think the move out of CSD is very bullish, like you said. How do you rationalize the, the multiple here? Yeah, yeah, the multiple right now, you're talking about somewhere a little bit north of 20, but actually, Tim, as you know, if you go forward and you look at that earnings growth that they've actually got right now, and they are bringing in cash, 
This is a company that's trading, if you look forward next year and the next couple of years, they actually are in the upper teens. They're somewhere between 18 and 20, call it something like that. But the growth that I see going forward, Tim, that's what excites me. And the growth particularly, and this is right up your alley, is India. They continue to go there because of the fact that carbonation is not what Coke is anymore. Used to be 90 plus percent was carbonation. Now we've pushed towards 70 percent. That's something that I think Coca-Cola has done a great Idiot. job at. And that will that number is going to come lower. All right, Pete, stand by. We're going to vote now. Tim, right. kick off the voting. By the way, in the crypto block, we did the Howie test. This is the Howley <laughs> test, Pete. Um, and it's a yeah, I know Howley. <laughs> it's the Howley test for Pete. And you're winning for me, man. Coke. Uh, uh, well, cool. Listen, I, I, I like Pete's pitch. I think it was amazing. I'm a seller here only because of valuation and the diversification side, which I think they're going to execute on. I think it's going to take time, and I think pricing within the soft drink space is still struggling. Dan. Uh, hey, Peter. Great to see you, brother. We miss hey. you. Uh, I'm going to be a buyer of your Coca-Cola, wow. and let me tell you why. You guys are talking about uh, you're looking at the out year at like 19 times. The stock actually hasn't been that cheap on the out year in a while. Expected to have double-digit earnings growth this year, about 8% next year. So I think you see a trade back up towards those highs if the market's stable to higher after the next print. Gee? Yeah. You know so what? How do you vote? Need, what is this chalkboard? I don't need that. I'm going over to the smart board. But, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, my Pete. goodness. Coke <laughs> and a smile. He's so I say you. yes to Pete. And I love the freak flag right yeah, there. Put the arrow there. You know, Coke, it has, you know, an, Coke e has an E in it. E at the end, yeah. I put an E right there. There's okay. my Coke. What's wrong with him? I, I don't know. Uh, so All right. Yes. So three buys, one sell on the desk. Pete, outstanding job. Enjoy the rest of your day out there. Thank what's, you. what's the on Thank the agenda you. here? Uh-huh. Uh, a little bit of surfing, a little bit of surfing, and a little bit of fish afterwards. Sounds like a good day to me. <laughs> All right, yeah, it does. Well, we'll see you later because we're actually going to, you know, share with you the results because I know you're eager to find out how America cool. voted. Um, so yeah. you out there, you out there, go to Twitter because you can vote right now in our poll whether or not you're buying or selling Pete's pitch for Coca-Cola. We'll reveal the results later on in the show. Plus, a never-before-seen clip of our exclusive interview with the Ripple CEO, Brad Garlinghouse, making a huge prediction about the future of crypto. You will not want to miss it. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC in New York City's Times Square. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earlier this week, we were out in San Francisco at the Credit Suisse Blockchain West Symposium, where our own Brian Kelly spoke with the CEO of Ripple, Brad Garlinghouse. Now, we aired some of the interview yesterday, but we also asked Brad what his two big predictions for the crypto universe were. Here they are. I'll maybe make two observations. I do think, I, I was out here in 1997, and I felt like there was an internet movement. And I feel like this is very similar. It feels very much like there are going to be lots of companies spawned. And I think those that focus on solving a real problem are going to be interesting. I do think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. So to your point of like what are the, you know, what's going to be broke, break into a media feed, you know, uh, recently Circle, a, a blockchain, a, a crypto company, bought a company called Poloniex, a digital asset exchange. I think there's going to be more consolidation, and I think that they will grow in size. I, I'll predict that the, the fidelities of the world will be in this space. I, I mean, they're that. already, I think, you know, it's relatively well known that the uh, chairwoman of Fidelity was mining Bitcoin under her desk. Right. You know, I'm not saying Fidelity specifically, but the, this is a new asset class, and it's going to continue to grow. And I think, uh, you know, there'll be reason to break in as it continues to grow. 
What do you think of the predictions? I think his first prediction is the most important one, and especially just being at that conference mail and talking to all those people. These are some of the smartest people in finance and some of the smartest people in tech. And what's different this time about the Internet, they have the same conviction about the Internet. They did not have tried-and-true managers like guys like Brad Garlinghouse running these entities. And that's what's different this time. So we are going to have peaks and troughs as far as the valuations of, of the assets, of the crypto assets. But some of these organizations like his are here to stay. All right. Yeah. And, just, and the second point about Fidelity. I mean, the whole point is it, it, that brings back regulation. Fidelity's coming in when there's regulation. They have to, and that's good for all this. All right. Well, switching gears, uh, BlackBerry getting a boost today. The options market's betting there's more gains ahead. So, Dan, why don't you break it down for us? Yeah, so let's talk about BlackBerry, talking about the 90s here. I mean, me, what's please? really interesting, what, what are you talking push about? Push guy on the way by. Happy Women's Day. Um, <laughs> here's the deal about this BlackBerry today. Call activity went berserk, and overall options activity was four times average daily volume, about 90% of that was in the calls. There was news um, that the company is going to sue Facebook over some of their messaging patents. And, you know, this is a company that actually successfully sued Nokia a few years ago, got an $800 million settlement. They have a great balance sheet. They have $2.5 billion in cash on a $7 billion market cap. So I think some investors are saying, hey, listen, these guys are not growing sales. They have no earnings, but maybe their patents are worth something. And maybe that means something for M&A, too. Who knows? Here's the deal, though. Um, you know, today, a lot of the options activity was in the market. March 9th weekly, tomorrow expiration, 12 and a half calls. They were trading about 45 cents, I think about 8,000. That's just short-term traders playing for a continued breakout here. That's not the sort of options activity that you'd generally be looking for um, to play for a longer move. And look at this thing. It's got a really nice uptrend here. We haven't talked about BlackBerry in a very long time, huh? Since BK put it in his top draw, I think. Remember <laughs> yeah. that? Almost BK. the QNX. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. <laughs> for more options action, exactly. check out the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. You know what's up next? What? Pete's pitch for Coke. Uh, what are the results? Exciting. There's still time to vote, so head over to Twitter right now. Uh, we'll reveal what you say, America, about Ooh. Pete's pitch right after this. So good. Welcome back. It's a moment magnum. I mean, Pete has been waiting for in Hawaii. And you know what song is popular on the beaches all across Hawaii? Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, that soulful ballad of pain and sorrow, provides a soundtrack to the beautiful coast because America is not buying Pete's pitch, but it is up a half a percent in the after hours. So there is the frown on Pete. Bye, Pete. Thanks. Tim, final trade. <laughs> the island version of Unbreak My Heart. European financials, you get me, UFN. Uh, Derm, D-E-R-M, into the June 30th Purdue today. I like the stock. I-W-M, I'm fading it. E-D. Mad Money starts right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.